copy of God's Word and go with me to the prophet Zechariah, chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 12 to 21 this morning, and that means we're wrapping up Zechariah. And what a fitting conclusion uh, chapter 14 is to all that has gone uh, before it. I haven't said anything about this until now, but there are some Bible scholars out there who don't think that Zechariah's ending fits with its beginning. Some would say that chapters 9 to 14 are so different from chapters 1 to 8 that they likely weren't even written by the same author or even within the same historical setting. Uh, And of course, that also leads them to question the integrity of Old Testament prophecy and divine inspiration and, and, and so on. Now, there are certainly other assumptions that have to be addressed in cases like this, such as one's bias towards divine revelation, for starters. But one thing is for certain, any plain reading of Zechariah's ending shows a deep unity with its beginning. In chapter 1, verse 15, God is angry with the nations that are at ease. And here we find him executing judgment. In chapter 2, verse 9, God promises to plunder the nations. And here in chapter 14, he does just that. In chapter 1, verse 17, God promises to establish a new Jerusalem, and here he exalts that city. In chapter 2, verse 12, God promises to make the land of Judah holy, and here he carries that out in full. In chapter 2, verse 11, many nations will gather at Jerusalem for worship, and chapter 14 ends on this note as well. And that's only a few examples But I mention it to help you see that there's no reason to question the unity of Zechariah or the integrity of this prophecy. It's one piece with one message about God returning to his people and restoring all things in the world through his king. Today, Zechariah takes us to the end of the world once again. Verse 12 starts in the same place we began last week. The scene of that great battle where all nations gather against God's people at Jerusalem. Same battle. But Zechariah sketches in a few more details of how that battle will go down. And what the world will be like once the king takes his throne and rules over the nations. Let's start in verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, A great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, 
and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments, in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Pause there for just a moment. Again, we're back at the same battle. Mentioned in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. But now there's more detail of how the attacking nations will be defeated. They will suffer plague, panic, and plunder on the great day of the Lord. First, we see plague. The Lord used plagues to defeat Egypt in the Exodus. We saw in verses 4 to 5 that Zechariah characterizes Jesus' return in terms of a greater exodus. And with a greater exodus comes a greater plague. And something to note about this plague is that it's intertwined with several curses found in Leviticus 26. People rotting away in famine, Leviticus 26.39... Wasting disease that consumes the eyes, Leviticus 26.16, all for disobeying the Lord's covenant. But the difference here is that the curses get ratcheted up all the more. Their flesh will rot while they're still standing on their feet. They won't gradually rot away because of famine. It's sudden. It is without warning. Kind of like leprosy might have broken out on people suddenly as a judgment from God in the Old Testament. The soldiers don't even fall to the ground while their flesh deteriorates before them. Sadly, in a nuclear world, that's not too hard to fathom. But this won't be the result of nuclear weapons, but the holy presence of an almighty king whose wrath is hot against his enemies. Also, it says their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Two times, Zechariah has used the eyes of the nations, figuratively. Their eyes should be fixed upon the Lord, but instead their eyes were full of sin and idolatry. And the tongue, many times in Scripture, is what's full of deceit, boasting, (coughs) blasphemy, They symbolize the nation's false worship and false speech that deserve God's judgment. The plague is awful. It's why in Revelation 6.16, the nations will cry out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them 
and hide them from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They will want death, but they will be forced to suffer. They will want to hide, but, no, but they will not be able. They will panic, which is something else that leads to their defeat that we see here. If we go back to Leviticus 26, again, to the curses in Deuteronomy 20, 28, verse 20, we also find panic, um, confusion, madness to be one of the curses Verse 13 says, A great panic from the Lord shall fall on them. And the response is very telling of the human heart, isn't it? When the nations panic, even friends become enemies. The nations start fighting each other. The Lord not only takes away their physical strength, their sight, and their speech, He also jeopardizes their unity. His judgments shred their social agreements and send them spiraling into chaos and madness. And then finally, there's plunder. This is a reversal of how the battle began. In chapter 14, verse 1, the nations plundered God's people. Now God's people plunder the nations. All that the nations live for, all that they found their meaning in, All the wealth they accumulated will be taken in an instant. Haggai 2.7 says that, that the Lord will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations come in. God takes the nation's riches and He makes them the inheritance of His people. Not because they deserve it, but because their king will prove himself glorious over their enemies and generous towards the people that he loves. The additional plague against the animals uh, may sound strange to us at first, but it's yet another layer to the nature of the nation's demise. Zechariah is, is, is interweaving Plagues, curses, plunder, all of these themes that we've seen running throughout the Old Testament in terms of judgment. He's he's intertwining them together and laying them over one another to describe this final and even worse judgment. So if you recall, when God put the city of Jericho under the ban, we talked some about this last week. His army was supposed to destroy not only the people, but also the oxen the sheep and donkeys. So also in verse 15, the plague will fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. It's another way of saying that the nations deserve divine extermination altogether. The word for beasts also appeared back in chapter 2, verse 4. But there it was a reference to the restored Jerusalem. A Jerusalem inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and the livestock inside, all the beasts inside. It's the same Jerusalem of chapter 14, verse 11, an inhabited city that will will never again experience a decree of utter destruction. But that security 
will not be true for anybody that opposes God's city. For them, they will only experience plague, panic, and plunder while facing divine extermination. You may already be asking how such a defeat of the nations at the end of the world matters for your life today. But there's plenty for us to consider. For starters, it gives us a clear picture of the Lord's intolerance of sins. He's not a slushy grandfather that just pats the nations on the head and says, boys will be boys. He punishes rebellion. Nobody can truly stand in His holy presence lest His grace intervenes. The world becomes increasingly tolerant of sin, but that's because our world does not know this King. The scene also gives us a good look at the way sin deceives people. These nations truly believe they can defeat the King of the universe. They truly believe their strength is greater, their armor is thicker, their weapons are better, their wealth is impressive, and in the end, God decimates them. It's a lesson to us, don't be fooled by sin. Don't be deceived with the rest of the nations. Don't get trapped in the grid through which they view the world, a grid that leads them to believe that God can be defeated. It's the same old lie of the serpent. You will not surely die. Oh, yes, you will. And that truth needs to be in our face every day before we sin. Before you hate your brother. Before you look at porn. Before you fall in love with money. Before you give in to temptation. The same sin crouching at the door of your life every day is the same sin leading these nations to fight a battle that ends in the decimation of their humanity altogether. Don't follow them. Do not choose to rot with the world. Rather, bow your knee to the king who is worthy. That's where we're going next. The worthy king... Worshipped. Look at verses 16 and 19, where we now get a picture of some among the nations worshiping the Lord. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, There will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This section is somewhat more complicated. And one's understanding of it largely depends on how you understand other passages uh, fitting together in the Scriptures, especially in terms of the end of time. But I'm persuaded that Zechariah is once again using categories from the past to speak of future realities that far surpass the old forms. 
It's kind of like being a dad in the 1800s. And as a dad, you promise to buy your son a horse and buggy for his 30th birthday. And the horse and buggy is the best form of personal transportation that you know of. Cars weren't invented yet. But then 30 years go by. The son has his birthday. And dad buys him a Ford Model T. It's not that the dad didn't fulfill his promise to the son to buy him a horse and buggy. It's that the dad fulfilled the promise to his son, but in ways that far surpassed the old form. I'm indebted to Greg Beale for that illustration, but the same is true here. Zechariah is using categories from the past to speak of future realities that far surpass the old forms. He's giving us a collage of Old Testament images to speak of the future. For example, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem is incredibly significant because that's where the temple was located. In Zechariah's day, it's it's where God dwelt and where he chose to put his name and where he met with his people. But in John's gospel, Jesus is the new and better temple. You remember him telling the disciples, uh, telling the, the, the Pharisees, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And John says he was talking to us about the temple of his body. The glory of God tabernacles in Jesus, John 1.14. Jesus replaces the temple and in a way that far surpasses the old form. And so it makes sense that he would then tell the Samaritan woman, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Why is that? Because Jesus is the place where all the nations now meet with God. So I see this as a picture of the nations perpetually coming to Jesus as their new and better temple. They're coming into the divine presence which now finds its locus in the person of Jesus and the people that he represents worldwide. It's theoretically possible that a physical temple might stand once again in the new age, depending on how you understand some of the prophecies like Isaiah 62 and Ezekiel 40 to 48. And you might even say that such a temple would serve as symbolic function until Jesus makes the entire earth his sanctuary. But that's harder for me to square with the book of Hebrews that says that the structures under the old covenant were but shadows of the far greater substance to come in Christ. Moreover, Zechariah has suggested before, and will do so again in just a minute, that not just Jerusalem, but the entire land of Israel will be transformed into God's sanctuary, a kind of non-architectural temple full of the glory of Jesus. This is the Jerusalem to which all nations will come, the one shining with the glory of Christ and that eventually consumes the world and transforms the world into an Eden-like paradise, a cosmic temple, so to speak. Or take the Feast of Booths. The picture in verse verse 16 is that the annual Feast of Booths would be celebrated by the nations perpetually. And the Lord had a couple of purposes for the Feast of Booths. If we look back in Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 31, 
One purpose was for the people to celebrate God's abundant provision of the harvest after entering the promised land. The other purpose was for the people to remember God's deliverance in the Exodus. That's why they built themselves the booths. To remember him bringing them through the wilderness. So the feast commemorated two things. Freedom from slavery and the abundance in the kingdom. Again, John's Gospel presents Jesus fulfilling the Feast of Booths. That's why the Feast of Booths is so prevalent in John's Gospel, chapter 7. And Jesus makes a pronouncement on the great day of that feast. He makes a pronouncement about himself. Not only is Jesus the one who delivers his people from slavery to sin, but anybody who believes in him will gain the abundance of his kingdom. He will give them the blessings of the Holy Spirit that become in that person rivers of living water. So I see this celebration of the Feast of Booths as a picture of the future. The nations celebrating what God has done for them in Christ. He delivered them from sin and brought them into the abundance of His kingdom. It reminds me of the day when, uh, that Zechariah 8.19 anticipated A day when the Lord would fill uh, fill His people with seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. As Zechariah has been telling us all along, it's a day when every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And and, And this also fits with the way we should understand the rains too, or the withholding of the rains. It's not merely talking about H2O. Rain already gets an imaginative expansion in the prophets, such that rains falling on the land become a picture of God pouring out blessings on His people in the end-time kingdom. We looked at that extensively in chapter 10, verse 1. So the point here is that those who refuse to worship Christ will be perpetually cut off from God's covenant blessings. And interestingly enough, the curse of no rain also appears among the curses of Deuteronomy 28. The Lord's curse will hang over those who do not worship Him. Whoever they are, wherever they live in the world, His curse will hang over them. It mentions Egypt in particular, but even Egypt... As we saw in chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, uh, even Egypt has become a type for, uh, for any nation that opposed the Lord. The point is that no nation opposed to God would escape His perpetual curse. Now, some have asked the question, you know, how, how could it even be possible that such nations would exist under the reign of Jesus once He comes? And some have attempted to answer that question by saying, well, the idea here is hypothetical. It's not actual. It's not like there's, nobody's going to be wanting, uh, not wanting to go worship Him. But others, my, like myself, would say it's actually real. It fits within the day that Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Some would say that happens during the millennium. So you know where I stand there. 
But Psalm 2, this is the day when Jesus rules the nations with a rod of iron. Or Revelation 2, when Jesus' people rule the nations with a rod of iron. And it also seems consistent with the expectation that Daniel 7.12 has when Christ takes away the domination, I mean the, the dominion of the rebellious nations, but it says their lives are prolonged for a season and a time. You may not agree with the way I just laid that out, but this we can all agree on. No nation opposed to God will escape his perpetual curse. And that's the picture here. Whether it happens in the millennium, or when Christ comes back forever, no nation opposed to God will escape his perpetual curse. But the good news of this passage, though, is that some will escape. Some will escape. Some will enjoy his blessings. Zechariah says that some uh, from the attacking nations are spared Whether they're spared in the battle itself or spared before the battle, it doesn't say. All that we know is that some rebels are spared and that they used to be part of these attacking nations, but now they're characterized as God's own remnant. There's the same, uh, you can't see it as well in in English, but the same, uh, at least in the English Standard Version, but the same Hebrew word applied to the remnant back in chapter 13, verse 8 with the um, two-thirds are going to perish, but one-third is going to be left alive. Um, Also, chapter 14, verse 2, some are going to go out into exile, but the, the rest shall not be cut off. And then here we get this word, survivors. So the same Hebrew word applied to the remnant there in chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14 also appears here. And the idea is that they've become, these these who were once part of the attacking nations, they've now become God's true people and they worship Him. I'm reminded of the way God spared Noah and his family or Lot and his family or Rahab and her family. Or the way God promised to spare some of the Philistines in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 7, and make them part of his remnant too. All of these are pictures throughout the Old Testament. Each of these people are right on the brink of destruction, and God plucks them out for himself, and he saves them. And the result is that they worship him, they give him honor, they give him praise and thanksgiving. These nations are just like us. We were part of the rebel nations. We set ourselves against God's kingdom. We too were on the brink of destruction. Jonathan Edwards has an illustration of us holding, uh, the Lord holding us over the pit of hell by a a single thread while the flames flash all around We were on the brink of destruction, but we were shown mercy in Christ. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. We were spared. And so we worship the Lord for our deliverance. We give Him thanks day in and day out for His abundant provision. 
Our king, yes, he punishes evildoers, but he has mercy on some. And he has had mercy on us who are in Christ. He sent his son into the world to suffer under the curse that we deserved. He sent his son to break the shackles of our sin that, uh, when, when we were still enslaved. He sent his only son to deliver us from the domain of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of his son. And his mercy should lead us to, to perpetual worship and celebration. All that we are, all that we do, all that we enjoy, all that we invest ourselves in should be offered to God as our worship. Worship cannot be reduced to what we do on Sunday mornings. It cannot be reduced to an event from 10.30 to 12 o'clock Sundays. No. Worship takes place in all that the Christian does to please his king. Because his king reigns over all and is, in present, is, and is present in all. Yes, we gather in corporate settings on Sunday to sing hymns to one another. To pray as one body. To pour over the word and to confess the ancient truths we treasure. But worship is so much more than that. And do you know why? The presence of the king in your life sanctifies everything for the believer. He makes everything holy because he is present in you through the Spirit. And that's where we're going next. A vision of the end where everything is holy to the Lord. Verse 20. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Again, this is Old Covenant language to speak of future realities that far surpass the old forms. I mean, the book of Hebrews cannot fathom a sacrifice after Christ. Okay? Christ, once for all time, gave his life on the cross and inaugurated the, the new covenant, making the first one obsolete. And where there is forgiveness, there's no longer any offering for sin. The point of the imagery here is not to envision a day when sacrifices will once again be offered. The point is to paint a picture of the future using categories that Zechariah's audience were already familiar with but had yet to reach their typological fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And that future picture that he's painting here is this. When the king comes, his glory presence would would sanctify all things, would make all things holy to the Lord. What used to be true of and limited to, say, the tabernacle or the temple, 
would actually pervade the whole land. And Isaiah gives us glimpses that it actually pervades the whole earth. Some of us need help with the word holiness. Many times when we think of holiness, uh, we think of moral perfection. That's what we reduce it to, moral perfection. But I doubt that that's all the seraphim have in mind when they never cease to cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Is that all they mean? Moral, moral, moral. God is certainly moral, but that's not all that they mean. You see, holiness, in that sense there, is speaking more to God's utter uniqueness. He's in a category all by himself. There's no one else like him. It's part of what it means to be God. Well, let's take another example. When a shovel or a pot in the tabernacle uh, or the temple, when it was consecrated, sprinkled with the blood and made holy, is that all that holiness means? The shovel is now morally perfect. That's not the point. The point is that it's become utterly unique, set apart to be used solely for the Lord Himself. It's been rendered special for His sake alone. Uh, same with the priesthood. What was inscribed on the, high, on the golden plate on the high priest's turban? Kadosh la Yahweh. Holy to the Lord. The same phrase we find here. The same phrase we see here, only here, it's applied to a horse, which was considered an unclean animal under the law. It's applied to basic kitchenware. The Tupperware has become holy. Not just in the Lord's house, look at it, it says, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy. To the Lord of hosts. Meaning, in that day, there won't be any need to distinguish between the holy and the profane, or between what's holy and what's common, because everything will be holy. Everything will be utterly set apart for God. He advances that a little further by saying that there won't even be a traitor. In the house of the Lord. And this can be taken in a couple of ways. Uh, if you take it as a trader, a merchant, I mean, you could think of uh, Jesus coming in and entering the temple with a whip and driving out the merchants, the traders cleansing the temple in that sense. It can also be translated a Canaanite. Same word. A Canaanite. So here he would be saying there won't even be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord. And that's not just to pick on the, a particular ethnicity. Rather, for Israel, who's on this side of the exile, the Canaanite was the epitome for idolatry. If you recall, before they went into exile, it was Canaan that they were supposed to conquer and they were supposed to rid of all idolatry. 
But instead, they were led astray by Canaan's idols. That will no longer be the case in the presence of the king, is what he's saying. He would purify his land and his people from all idolatry. There wouldn't be Canaanites in the kingdom. Everybody would be true worshipers. Everybody would be holy. Everything would be sacred. This is what the end of the world is about. You know, history is not cyclical. Everything just continuing as is, world without end. As perhaps maybe our Hindu and Buddhist and other neighbors would say. Rather, history is linear with this God-ordained goal at the very end of it. Everything holy to the Lord. This is where creation is heading. And if you are a Christian, this is the goal for your life. Do you believe that? Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why and for what purpose? That we might be holy and blameless before Him. From before the foundation of the world to the very end of the world. This is God's plan for you, believer. That you, that your destiny would be holiness. And it's not just our destiny. It's who we are now. In this life. The church of Jesus Christ is an outcropping of the future kingdom. You see, we have already been sanctified by the king. We have already been consecrated by his blood. That's what happens when you believe in Jesus. He consecrates you with his blood. He cleanses you from all sin. He sets you apart exclusively for God. We are holy to the Lord, Redeemer Church. In the same way that the King's presence will sanctify all things in the age to come, so He sanctifies all things in our lives right now. Even in relation to food and marriage, 1 Timothy 4.14 says this, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's not to promote some kind of autonomous materialism or some kind of self-centered hedonism. You know, everything I deem holy is holy. Rather, Paul is encouraging a kind of lifestyle that sees everything in relation to God and His goodness. Everything He created that is good becomes opportunity for us to give Him thanks for it and opportunity to serve our neighbors with it. In this way, it becomes sanctified holy, set apart for God. How does that play out in your life? When people look into your life, are they getting a sneak peek at Christ's future kingdom 
on earth. Holy to the Lord. When our neighbors look into the life of this church, what do they see? Do they see a gathering of people whose values and morals and treasures look no different than theirs? Or do they see the presence of the King sanctifying all things in our lives, in our relationships to one another? The presence of the King setting all things apart exclusively for His service and honor and the spread of His glory. Do outsiders enter the life of our church gatherings and as 1 Corinthians 14.25 says, and the secrets of their hearts are exposed. And so falling on His face, He will worship God and He will declare that God is really among you. Richard Phillips asks this question, What do you think you will like about heaven if you do not love holiness now? What do you think you will like about heaven if you do not love holiness now? Brothers and sisters, we were not chosen to be left as we are. We are destined for the picture that you see here in Christ's kingdom. Holy to the Lord. If this is the end of your story, what kind of life should you be living, should you be living now? Is the story that you're writing now with your every word and deed Does it have this kind of ending? Or will it end with plague, panic, and plunder outside the Lord's city? In the place that Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If being holy to the Lord doesn't excite you all that much, perhaps you've for too long dulled your spiritual awareness of what is truly marvelous and settled for the lesser pleasures of this world. It's, worth, it's, it's not worth living for what will ultimately be stripped away from you in the end. Repent and give yourself to what is lasting in the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean you become a monk. It doesn't mean you have to go to seminary. Doesn't mean you have to take on a leadership role in the church. It may mean you just start seeing your life a little differently than before. That the presence of the King in your life sanctifies everything that you do and not just your Sunday morning. Developing software for a company, filling up trucks with diesel, mowing the grass to make a living. Changing a diaper, again. Teaching a child Latin. Serving a table at a restaurant. Filling out tax forms for your company. Working night shift security. Vacuuming the fellowship hall. Visiting a friend in the hospital, knitting a scarf for a, sw- for a sister, 
studying hard for an exam, assessing the investments of your clients on the computer, driving a truck to make a delivery. If you belong to Jesus, the presence of the King is with you by the Holy Spirit. And in the same way that His presence sanctifies all things in the age to come, so His presence sanctifies all that you do to bring Him glory and love others now in this life. And this is why Paul can say, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's not talking about coming here on Sunday morning in that passage from 1030 to 12 to sing. He's talking about giving your bodies every day in all that you do to the Lord. And it is holy and acceptable to God. Not because we make it holy, but because the blood of Jesus has consecrated us and set us apart for God. So the call to us this morning from Zechariah 14 is manifold. Zechariah has given us a glimpse of the end of the world. We've seen the righteous judgment of the king. He doesn't tolerate sin. And all who choose to side with the world instead of siding with him will experience his perpetual curse. This should, show, this should sober us when we think about our own temptations to sin. But it should also compel us to warn others of the King's coming judgment and then extend to them the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to warn you now, your story will not end well. You will forever be under God's curse But I want you to know the good news. The good news is that Jesus died for your sins and he bore God's curse in your place. Take his escape. Trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will be saved. Plague, panic, plunder, divine extermination, the curse, the lake of fire... It can all be escaped through, the tr- through trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the reconciliation to God that he provides through, the, through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We've also seen that our king is worthy to be worshipped by all nations. And one, and one day, such worship will cover the entire earth. He will show mercy to some. And they will perpetually celebrate him in the abundance of his kingdom. For us who are in Christ, that worship has already begun. We are called to celebrate our deliverance, believer. We are called to celebrate the abundant blessings of his forever kingdom. We are called to keep coming to him in worship. Keep coming to the Lord, the King, in adoration and praise, surrendering our allegiance to Him in in all things. And we've also seen that the reason we can do that is that the presence of the King in our lives sanctifies everything. We, you, who are in Christ, are holy to the Lord. 
Before you open a book this week, thank the Lord for His goodness in allowing you to study in His presence. Before you rise in the morning, thank the Lord that you can live life, as that Latin expression says, quorum Deo, before the face of God. Before you sit down to eat this week, bless the Lord for giving you the privilege to eat and drink to His glory. Before you turn on the computer at work or look at your iPhone in the evening, pray that God will help you use those tools in sacredness. Why? Because the King is with you. He is in your midst. Before you enter a crazy house after a long day at the office, ask the Lord to make your responses and your attitudes a sneak peek into the coming kingdom. What will your wife, what will your children, what will your friends see this week? Before you Babysit your grandchildren. Consider that every moment with them becomes opportunity to direct them to the reign of the King. God is taking us to His city forever, where His presence will flood the earth with His holiness. Let the end of the story shape how you live today. Holy to the Lord. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new.